It's Thursday, March the 10th, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. I'm not the only fellow who's doing podcasting these days. If you don't believe me, go to Hoover's website, which is hoover.org. Click on where it says publications. Go to the left side where it said podcast, and you'll see a whole array of stuff waiting for you. You can subscribe to any or all of them. You can also sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best of Hoover podcast to your inbox each and every month. Hoover podcast is one part of Ideas Defining a Free Society. My guest today is Bjorn Lomborg. Bjorn Lomborg is a Hoover Institution Visiting Fellow, President of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, and a visiting professor at the Copenhagen Business School. He's also a best-selling author whose 2020 book, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet, examines why climate change is real, but not necessarily the coming of the apocalypse. Those listeners familiar with the Hoover Institution will recognize Bjorn from his past appearances on Hoover's Goodfellows and UK broadcast, the Common Knowledge broadcast. Bjorn, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Hey, Bill, it's great to be here. So ordinarily, uh, we are having conversations with you uh, from the other side of the pond, uh, Denmark and Sweden, but today finds you in all places, California and Stanford University. Hope you've enjoyed your visit, Bjorn. I'd like, oh, to talk, good... like to talk about California for a couple minutes because it is kind of an odd island into itself in America, especially when it comes to energy. Uh, what do we know about California, Bjorn? First of all, it is a state that is just becoming notoriously anti-oil in this regard. Uh, there are about 1,000 permits for new oil and gas wells that are sitting with the state's oil and gas supervisor. Uh, they could be approved tomorrow. They're not going to get approved anytime soon. Uh, last month, Bjorn, 80 scientists and academics, including a former U.S. Energy Senate, uh, Secretary, urged the governor to delay the closure of California's last remaining nuclear power plant. Uh, the state intends to stop issuing new fracking permits in 2024. And Bjorn, here's what Governor Gavin Newsom said uh, just the other day in his State of the State address, quote, Drilling even more oil only leads to even more extreme weather, more extreme drought, more wildfire. We need to be we need to be fighting polluters, not bolstering them, and in the process of so doing, freeing us once and for all from the grasp of petro dictators. <laughs> uh, well, I guess there's a couple of comments uh, to that. If you actually look at how much energy we get from fossil fuels, all the rich countries uh, get about three quarters, uh, four-fifths of their energy from fossil fuels, not just electricity, but all the energy we need. And one of the reasons that the recent invasion uh, from Russia into Ukraine is so disruptive is because we have masked this dependency. Uh, we put up all these solar panels and wind turbines, but we are crucially dependent on, for instance, gas when the wind is not blowing and the sun is not shining. And so in some sense, sure, there is a problem with global warming. And, and you know, Newsom is right to say that we need to find a way eventually to stop using fossil fuels. But this idea of saying that we can just go cold turkey, I think, has been blown to smithereens by that very invasion in Ukraine. It turns out that for now, it's really hard to run a modern economy without a lot of backup from fossil fuels and, and quite frankly, just a lot of fossil fuels. The question is, how do we make that fossil fuel emit less CO2? That's about switching from coal to gas. And it's also about using nuclear to the extent that we can. But it's also about recognizing we don't have the technologies right now. That's, I think, the conversation that both Ukraine is pushing on us and that we really need to get to if we're not just going to have another round of, of wishful thinking and you know, talking about rainbows and, and, and right. uh, unicorns. Now, uh, around these parts uh, here in Northern California, uh, beyond everyone's hair is on fire about gasoline prices. Uh, I filled up my car the other day, about six and a half gallons. It was about $40 US, about $5.79 a gallon. How much is gasoline where you come from? Huh. Uh, so uh, uh, it's, sorry, I have to both calculate the uh, the uh, currency. Well, and you do it you do it liter, liters in euros. We, so. we do in liters. So it'd be uh, like, uh, what, four, two and a half dollars per liter. Yeah. And then times almost four, so that's uh, that's like ten dollars. So it's still more uh, than than what you're paying. But I think the again the fundamental point: if you look at what a lot of climate uh, campaigners have been telling us, is mm -hmm. we need to make fossil fuels so expensive people will switch. Uh, and, and that's true. If you want to actually fix climate change right here and right now, you just need to you know, force people off fossil fuels. I, I argue that that's probably not a good a, a investment, but that's what people have been saying. But they've also been telling us 
And that will actually make you rich. It'll make us better off. It'll make us happier. It'll make you know, more jobs and all this stuff. But now we're seeing what happens when the price go up and most people just don't like it. It is not to say that you know, good things can cost money, but we need to be honest again in this conversation and say, switching away from fossil fuels means it's going to hurt. Now, some hurt is okay because we're trying to get rid of global warming, which is also a problem. But right. a lot of hurt, most people just won't keep voting for politicians who promise that kind of policies. Yeah, that's what's interesting right now because you see polls here in America where people say, I'm willing to pay more gasoline because it's tied directly into Ukraine. It's sort of a rally around mm-hmm. the flag effect, This, in this case, rally around the Ukrainian flag. What I'm curious about, Bjorn, is what happens in a few months if, say, the, di- the fighting dies down in Ukraine, those images aren't dominating the headline news, and Americans then go back to concentrating on domestic economic fronts, and they look at gas, they look at inflation, look at cost of living. I wonder if they'll still be as you know jacked about paying more gasoline. Uh, of, of course they won't. I mean, uh, I think it's wonderful that everybody is so willing to try to help Ukraine. There are probably more, more effective ways to help them. Uh, than to bear a higher uh, uh, cost of, uh, of gasoline. Uh, but fundamentally, the idea of suggesting that we are going to solve global warming, which is a real problem, right. by forcing everyone to switch away from the cheapest and most effective and most reliable energy sources that we have towards less reliable that are going to cost you more, essentially telling everyone, I'm sorry, could everyone be a little colder, a little less, uncom- a little less comfortable, and a little poor? That's just not going to work. And that's what people typically say no to. And again, what that emphasizes is if you want to fix climate change, you need to find a way that's actually compatible with democracy, that's actually compatible with most people saying, look, I'm willing to spend a couple hundred dollars on climate change. I'm not willing to spend $11,000 as one recent uh, estimate showed the going to net zero would cost every American every year by 2050. You want to see the movie The Matrix? Yes. Okay, so you're familiar with the concept of the red pill and the blue pill? Yes. Okay, so for those listeners who aren't familiar with this, The Matrix, I think it first came out in 1999, been sequel since. The idea is you have a choice in life. You can take the blue pill, which allows you to live in just sort of, you know, oblivious nirvana, or you take the red pill, which is a wake up to reality. Uh, this ties into the column that you wrote for the Dallas Morning News, the headline, uh, how can Europe stop using Russian gas? And the answer is in the same headline, nuclear powered fracking. Bjorn, is Western Europe taking the red pill now when it comes to its energy needs? <laughs> I'm hoping that it's taking a slightly less blue shade of a pill. Mm-hmm. So it's moving a little bit towards being realistic about what, what's actually uh, working. So remember, a lot of people have been pushing for green energy. Uh, And that typically means the easy thing, namely uh, 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 making uh, electricity production more green. That's very often being sold as solar and wind. Uh, But of course, the problem with solar and wind is you can't rely on it. What happens when the wind dies down or the sun is not shining? You don't have anything. So actually, almost everywhere, by far the biggest renewable energy sources is hydro, the stuff that we had before, and wood. We burn a lot of wood. So about 60% of all renewables in, in Europe is probably wood pellets, mostly from the US that get you know, freighted over in big uh, uh, diesel run ships. Uh, and we burn them in our furnaces and feel really virtuous. Uh, but the reason why we do that is because you can actually burn it when you need it instead of what right. you get with solar and wind when the, the uh, nature happens to want you to have that energy. That's the important part, that you need a backup source. A lot of people will then say, oh, but we can just use batteries. Well, batteries are actually not very great right now. So despite the fact that we build a lot more and they've become a lot cheaper, Europe has energy sufficient for one minute and 25 seconds. So we can supply the average energy use of Europe for one minute and 25 seconds, and then we're all out of batteries. By the end of the century, sorry, by the end of the decade, we will possibly have upwards to 12 minutes of, of, of power. That takes us nowhere. Remember the average uh, 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 lull in, in, uh, in winds in Germany uh, every year is about five days, so more than 7,000 minutes. And of course, every night we know very regularly there's no sunlight. So we need something much, much more. And that's where we uh, use the gas. Uh, that's what the Russian gas really is about. You can burn gas instead of coal. And that's great because it actually means you emit much less CO2. 
but you can't live without gas unless you're willing to live in a society where you don't have power 24 seven. And most people don't want that sort of society. It's also a very unproductive society. It's one that in many ways would be much, much less desirable. So unless you wake up and realize you need that sort of backup power, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, yes, you are taking the blue pill. You're just trying to suggest that, sure, we can just do all solar and wind, but in reality, you'll just be burning wood imported from the US. And of course, most people can't do that most places around the world. Now, was Putin the wake-up call, Bjorn, or would you contend that maybe the wake-up call was inevitable? It was inevitable, but Putin happened to be the right. thing that hap happened and made people realize, oh, wait, we can't actually do that. And so, so in some sense, I, I think it's wonderful because making us realize that our current approach was never going to work out and we are becoming more realistic. We need to have more access to gas. A lot of it is going to be LNG, so we're basically going to be importing a lot from the US, which produces a lot of gas from fracking. That's great for you. And it's also pretty good for Europe. And then there's a lot of arguments about, oh, we're going to use less energy, you know, energy efficiency, uh, which typically doesn't actually end up working. Energy efficiency is great, but when you become smarter at uh, using your energy, you just use more. Uh, so typically it doesn't actually reduce the overall aggregate demand. And then we talk about putting up more wind and solar. I think that's partly the, the remnants of, of, of this wishful thinking. Uh, and, and I also get that it makes it sound like you're still having uh, abandoned all your goals. But the reality, of course, is what really will matter is if we can get more gas and if we can get more electricity. Uh, let's talk a minute about uh, fracking, and then let's go to nuclear power after that. Fracking. Uh, a few years ago, Bjorn, Eastern Europe seemed poised to take advantage of fracking technology. Uh, Chevron, Exxon, Mobil were busy. Uh, Eni, which is an Italy concern, was uh, was looking at the region. In 2014, Bjorn, uh, David Cameron at the time, uh, England's prime minister, visits a potential drilling site in Eastern England, declares, quote, we're going all out for shale. It will mean more opportunities for people and economic security for our country. Bjorn, what happened to the promise of all of this? So I think everybody looked at the US and said, wow, you guys really made it. Remember, when you talk about fracking, you basically made an enormous new energy source available. It had two big impacts. Partly, it meant that you have been the country of the last decade that have reduced its carbon emissions the most. That's simply because you've switched from coal to gas. When you get a cheaper energy source, like gas, like frack gas, you will stop using coal and you'll use a lot more gas and that reduces your emissions. That's great. It's also given you a lot cheaper energy. Now it also has problems. So fracking has real problems. It has air pollution problems, water pollution problems. Much of this can be handled with good regulation, but not of it, not all of it will be ha handled. So, you know, a recent study showed that the benefit for the U S with frack gas was probably in the order of about $100 billion per year. Uh, and the cost, mostly in environmental cost, is somewhere between you know, 10 and $25 billion per year. So there are real problems. And that's, of course, what a lot of opponents have been arguing. But the benefits vastly outweigh the cost. That's why it's a great opportunity for the US. And that's, of course, why it's great that we can buy it from you. But there's also this opportunity to do it both in, in Europe and also elsewhere, for instance, in China and many other places. It is undoubtable that this would be the single best way to cut carbon emissions in Europe, also in China and many other places. Europe, as you said, started down this road of actually starting fracking. There's two problems with this. Partly in the US, people who own the land also owned the stuff down below it. Right. So sure, if they have like a, a fracking rig and it's really uncomfortable and there's a lot of tr you know, trucks driving and maybe there's some odors and stuff, that's unpleasant, but they also get a lot of money. So most people will be like, oh, okay, that's fine. But that's not the case in uh, Europe. Uh, the government owns the underground. So basically you get all the problems, but the government gets all the money. Now, clearly you could have organized that better by you know, simply saying, but we are actually gonna just redistribute some of that money back to the owners of the land so that it would be beneficial for you to accept to have a fracking rig. The other thing I think happened was, and we have this from several different sources, Hillary Clinton, uh, the uh, former Secretary of NATO, and many others have indicated that Russia specifically donated a lot of money to fracking opponents. This is not unheard of, and of course it makes good sense from Russia. They right. would much rather have Europe keep buying its own gas 
rather than starting making its own fracking gas. So what happened was you basically saw this groundswell, or at least a lot of campaigners telling us, oh, this is going to be terribly dangerous. We're all going to be sick. And you know, the, you, you remember those movies where you, you, know, you see you can, uh, you can light the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the gas that comes out of your faucet and that kind of stuff. It, <laughs> it makes for, 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 for a great show. And, and yes, again, there are places where there have been problems, but overall they're contained and they could be much better contained with good regulation, which Europe is great at. So there really isn't a problem, but because we didn't have the knife to our throat uh, and we could con conveniently keep buying gas from Russia. And because we were told by a lot of campaigners, possibly funded by Russia, that this was a big, big problem. We shouldn't be doing it. Fracking basically died from a lot of people saying we don't want this extra risk. I think now is different because now you realize, well, there's a risk of buying Russian gas, namely that you actually fund a Ukrainian war. Right. Maybe we'd rather have the fracking risk. And of course, the amazing fracking benefits that we could have both in reducing our carbon emissions and in making Europe more uh, energy independent. Can you back up a second, Bjorn, and explain the land rights situation in Europe? I think our American audience will be interested in this. Um, you telling me that if I am growing potatoes on my farm in Europe and I happen to strike oil on that farmland, that the government owns the oil? Yes, the government owns everything. Uh, I, I don't think they own the uh, the potatoes, right? So I mean, it probably so I got the topsoil like, they pretty, have, what's beneath yeah, the top a pretty <laughs> a, a, a few feet down. Yes, but everything else uh, belongs to uh, the government. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's a different rights. And, and as you know, uh, uh, economists would tend to say both of these could be uh, equivalently effective and it's really just a redistribution issue. But in this particular case, it happens to have a huge impact because clearly if you don't get the benefits of the fracking, you're going to be much, much less enthused about the disbenefits of more trucks and odors and uh, uh, pollution. Exactly. Let's stick with the UK for a second, Bjorn. Boris Johnson, now the British Prime Minister, uh, said the other day he wants to phase out Russian oil by the end of 2022, I believe. Uh, he said it's time now for the UK to invest in more nuclear and renewable sources. At the same time, Bjorn, you have about 40 members of parliament uh, calling for an end to UK's ban on fracking. Where do you think that debate is going? It's very hard to tell. I think this is an opportunity to talk about we need to get gas. Remember, England probably has gas. Uh, so uh, the UK has gas for for about fifty years in its own reservoirs, and probably as the uh, the US has discovered, once you start digging and once you start utilizing, you'll find even more. So it's very likely that they have huge resources that would mean they could get their own gas instead of having to buy it from uh, uh, from Russia. And of course, it would make them both most more energy secure, it would still uh, reduce or at least keep emissions fairly low, and it would secure the supply. Uh, I think that argument is strong. Uh, again, uh, Boris Johnson then also says we should do nuclear, which is great, and we'll get to that in just a second. And then he says, which all the European leaders are saying, we should do more renewables. But again, the problem with renewables is that currently, they're not cost effective. So right now, uh, the EU estimate that the total amount of renewables that we have from solar and wind has actually added about 20% to costs. Uh, and that's because you have to subsidize what happens when the sun is not shining and the wind's not blowing. Sure, they're really, really cheap when the wind is uh, uh, blowing, but that doesn't help you if, you if the cost of wind power when the wind is not blowing is infinite. That's why you really need to have either lots, lots more uh, batteries, and we're far away from that. We're talking two or three or four decades before that can really be a, a big part of the, uh, of the solution. Or you need some other uh, uh, process, like for instance, gas. Now, people love to also say, oh, but we could just have these wind turbines run and do hydrogen, for instance, and then we'll transfer that hydrogen back into electricity uh, when the wind is not blowing. But it turns out, again, and perhaps not surprisingly, to be incredibly expensive. Again, all of these are potential solutions out in the future. But if you want to fix this now, if you want to do something that will actually work in the next five or 10 years, you need to do something that's much more realistic. And that will be, to a very large extent, fracking. So if you're the UK and Bjorn and you're looking at a combination of fossil and nuclear and renewable, what's, if you could think of this as a pie chart, what would be the proper distribution of those, of those sources? 
I, I don't think I'm, I'm good enough to be able to tell you that. I, I think that requires a lot more specific knowledge in these different areas. Uh, the, the point that I try to make uh, about renewables is that we've sort of jumped out on the deep end and just said, it's all about getting as much renewables as we can. It right. makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're really pushing the envelope. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there's two things we need to recognize. One is it also drives up electricity prices. And it makes more people uncomfortable about these policies. And of course, as, as electricity prices goes up enormously, as they did in Europe before the Ukraine crisis, for very different reasons, because we've had very, very low winds for the last year. So we basically used up all our gas uh, uh, depots as backup. That shows you that sometimes, and maybe this is only once a decade, but you'll end up with enormously high cost of electricity. And most people will tend to say, I don't wanna vote for politicians who keep making that happen. This makes climate policy unsustainable. So that's part of this. And the other part of course is we need to focus on making sure that we actually get better technologies in the long run, because this is not just about rich, well-meaning Americans, or rich, well-meaning Europeans. If you want to fix climate change, you also need to get the Chinese, the Indians, the Africans, the rest of Southeast Asia and the Latin Americans on board. And they're not going to say, sure, we're going to you know, put on hold uh, getting our populations out of poverty and, and just do the climate bit. They want cheap and plentiful and 24-7 power. And that will only happen with either gas or with nuclear, or with some combination of, 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 uh, of, of batteries and uh, renewables that we still haven't figured out. So let's talk about nuclear for a few minutes and let's go onto the continent itself, Bjorn, and let's look at two countries in particular, two sophisticated countries with advanced economies, Germany and France. Germany's closed three nuclear reactors. France last month announced plans to construct up to 14 new generation reactors and a fleet of smaller nuclear plants. How did these two nations come to different conclusions on nuclear, Bjorn? So there's no doubt that France originally switched to nuclear for very different reasons. They wanted to build more nuclear weapons. They also wanted to be totally energy independent. It had very little or nothing to do with climate policy. But it turns out that having your country mostly run on nuclear power is great when it comes to CO2 emissions. Now, let's just get this uh, out of the way. The, The reason why most people worry about nuclear power is because it shares the part of the word with nuclear weapons, right? It sounds right. dangerous. And, and look, it's not undangerous, but then again, let's also just remember no energy technology is undangerous. Stuff always happens with all kinds of things. The most obvious thing is, uh, you know, coal power uh, kills somewhere between half and a million people every year. Uh, 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 nuclear power over its 40-year operating period has possibly killed, you know, in the order of 10 to 20,000 people in total. So it's not undangerous, but no big technology is. And it's certainly one of the least dangerous ones. If you actually look at it per kilowatt hour, it's probably one of the very, very lowest risk uh, of any uh, uh, energy form. So it's not because we should be worried about nuclear as being dangerous. However, nuclear can be costly. It wasn't for France because they basically built lots of these. They built it in their own uh, uh, design. And it, it certainly now is running very, very cheaply. Mm-hmm. For Germany, Germany has been very focused on saying we want solar and wind. It feels very good. But of course, remember, it doesn't actually deliver all that much reduction in, uh, in emissions because you still need a lot of backup power and you need higher prices. And so Germany emits much, much more uh, CO2 per kilowatt hour uh, than does France because it still gets most of its uh, uh, energy, sorry, most of the electricity from fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. What German then have compounded this, because they still had, you know, uh, uh, I, I believe they also had 14 gener- uh, uh, nuclear power plants back in uh, uh, when Fukushima happened, and Merkel basically jumped on the board and said, "All right, we're going to get rid of all of these." And that the the three ones that you were talking about are yeah. almost the last vestige of, of, of that. That's just stupid, because if you've already built your power plants, you paid for the biggest cost, which is the building of it. You've already committed to decommissioning it eventually, which is the second largest cost of a nuclear power plant. When you just run it, it costs almost nothing. So basically you're saying no to having CO2 free, incredibly cheap marginal power. That's just dumb to shut that down. That's dumb in Germany, it's dumb in California or in New York or any other place where you take an existing nuclear power plant and say, we're gonna scrub that. No. 
If you have it, you should just run it until it's unsafe to do so because it generates very, very low cost, zero CO2 emissions power. That's great. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem with Germany. And I think that's where France is, has the, uh, the, the right angle on this to say, we're going to do a lot more nuclear power. The problem with nuclear power generally around the world is that it is now so expensive to build right. that the, uh, uh, the power plants we've seen in Finland and, in, and the UK have gone way over uh, uh, budget and are incredibly costly and likely to deliver very uncompetitive power prices. This is, uh, there's a lot of people arguing, and I think that's reasonably convincing that this is because uh, of so many regulations, much of which has been instituted by both people who are very worried, but also people who actually don't want us to have a lot of nuclear power. So they make these, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the hoops you have to jump through, almost impossible to jump through. That's, of course, really, really sad. But it's also hard to do anything about. And I think that's where the solution from Bill Gates and many others are building these new fourth generation nuclear power plants uh, that are going to be more modular, much cheaper, much safer. Uh, They could be a potentially amazing opportunity for the world. Remember, we've always heard that the next generation will be much cheaper and much better. So we should still be a little skeptical. But fundamentally, that is where the solution is going to come from. Both Germany should be buying a lot of, or it should be investing a lot in making sure that we get this fourth generation that hopefully becomes really cheap. And likewise, France would probably also do better by actually using fourth generation rather than just building a lot more of the third generation. So do you have more confidence in the promise of cheaper nuclear reactors or more confidence in Elon Musk saying he can build an electric car for 40,000 bucks? <laughs> yes. And, and I think the, this underscores one of the points that I have, I've been making for uh, at least a decade when uh, we worked with uh, 47 of the world's top climate economists and three Nobel laureates to find out what are the most effective ways to try to tackle climate change. And what they found was the long term best investment is to invest in green energy research and development. So what the, the idea here is to say, if you could come up with a technology that was so cheap that everybody would just want it. And it was green, you know, it, basically emitting zero carbon. For instance, fourth generation nuclear power. Everybody would switch. We'd be done. You know, we wouldn't have to have any of these UN arm twisting meetings because everybody would do it because it was in their own interest. Just like what happened in the US when you had fracking, you know, everybody switched. You didn't need to, you know, force anyone to do it. They did it because it was cheaper. Now, the point, of course, is. We don't know if fourth generation nuclear is going to be the solution. It could be. It's certainly one of the best contenders right now. But there are many other things. And we should be investing research and development across all these areas. Because, again, we really just need one of these many technologies to come through. And that's going to be the solution. So it should definitely be focusing on uh, uh, getting fourth generation nuclear. We should also make sure that we emphasize still fracking. And we pretty much had that in the bag, but we it, it could get even better. And certainly you'll probably need development in Europe because it's going to be different than what it was in, in the US and likewise for China. And we should also be looking at all these other technologies. Let me just give you one example. Uh, so Craig Venter, the guy who cracked the human genome back in 2000, he has this idea of, of basically taking uh, gene modified algae out on the ocean surface they would be out there soaking up sunlight and CO2 and producing oil. And then we just harvest, you know, we'd have sort of a floating uh, uh, Saudi Arabia on, on, in the Pacific. We'd just be harvesting that. We'd get all the oil. We would continue our entire fossil fuel economy, but now powered by this oil that came out from the, uh, that just soaked up the CO2, you know, six months ago out in the Pacific Ocean. And it would essentially be CO2 uh, 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 neutral. That'd be an amazing opportunity. Right. You can do it. We know we can, but it's vastly inefficient right now. So it's certainly not commercially viable. But the point is, if we invest in a lot of those technologies, so both the fourth generation nuclear, uh, Craig Venter's proposal for this, and all the other ideas that are out there, one of them is going to come through. So no, I'm not going to buy uh, uh, Elon Musk telling us, oh, he's going to make this $40,000 right now. But I'm very, very happy that Elon Musk is one of the guys out there doing this. And if we invest in a lot of these guys, one of them will actually come up with something that'll you know, uh, uh, right. live up to its promise. And he's trying to build better batteries too. 
Yes, but but again, <laughs> and we just need to get a sense of the order of magnitude that yes. we need. Uh, it's not like we need a tenfold increase. It's more like we need, uh, you know, uh, uh, somewhere between ten thousand, a hundred thousand times increase, and that's just not going to happen at any uh, realistic course over the next couple of decades. A final thought about Germany is goes back to the red pill question I posed to you about the matrix. Uh, we saw the German government move on a dime when it came to defense spending uh, after the Ukraine invasion, Bjorn. Um, given uh, the Nord Stream pipeline question, uh, are we seeing any shift right now in German energy policy? Well, we're certainly seeing a resurgence of realizing you need nuclear power. So they're looking right. into whether they can reestablish those nuclear power plants that they took offline. Um, it, I don't know enough about it, but my sense is that they, they've already been run down because you know rational companies being told you have to stop this power plant in two years, sort of let it just run into the ground. Uh, and, and so what they've certainly said in the past was it's almost impossible to reverse. But it shows you that they're really thinking maybe we need to do something differently. Uh, likewise, I think there's a bigger understanding for fracking, probably not first in, in Germany, but I think they certainly understand they need to get, get gas from elsewhere. So if you had a Poland, if you had a UK uh, doing fracking, uh, Germany would undoubtedly be very interested in buying that as well, also because it'd be a lot cheaper than getting LNG from the US. Let's shift here to America for a second. Uh, the Biden administration, as I'm sure you're aware, Bjorn, uh, has very ambitious ideas when it comes to climate change. Uh, Congress right now continues to debate the Build Back Better plan. Uh, the latest idea from a Democratic senator is to spend about half a trillion dollars, $555 billion to be exact over 10 years for solar panel tax credits, longer lasting solar batteries, smaller modular nuclear reactors, yada, yada, yada. Uh, what intrigues me here is another Biden administration idea, Bjorn, and that's electricity. Um, getting back to Tesla cars and uh, EVs, the administration wants to have 500,000 high volume rapid chargers coast to coast. Uh, this makes sense because if you and I hopped in a car and drove from California to Massachusetts in a, in a Tesla, uh, we'd have a problem every 300 miles. We'd have to stop and find yes. some place to charge. And if we didn't have the luxury of a high-speed Tesla charger, we'd be spending hour upon hour trying to get back to charge. And so it would go take for take a very long time to get coast to coast. So this plan addresses that. Good idea. But here's the question, Bjorn. If you put half a million high-volume chargers across the United States of America, how do we come up with the electricity to power all these things? Hmm. And because, we don't know the, the good because, answer to that. Yes. Because again, you're in California, my friend. And guess what? Every summer when it gets unseasonably hot for a few days, we have an electricity crisis because simply why? Because demand outpaces generation. Yeah. And, and, and look, we don't have a good answer to this right now. I think to a very large extent, the, the sort of energy transition that a lot of people talk about is basically built out of good wishes and a lot of people trying to tinker and say, let's try and do something like that. I, I, I think the honest answer would be, you know, if you put up 500,000 uh, charging points, you'll right. realize you don't have enough power. So then we will say we need to build a lot more wind turbines. Then you'll realize we don't have power all the time. So you'll say, then we have to build a lot more batteries. And then eventually you'll sort of, you know, get it all stuck together. Now that's not really a plan. That's more sort of wishful thinking extended into the indefinite future. Right. Uh, and, and so I think what this shows us is this is all this, you know, the feel good stuff that you want to do. Again, electric cars are, you know, if you've ever driven a Tesla, you'll know it's a great idea. You know, it's also a very, very expensive idea, but if you have the money, that's great and it's fun. If you're, you know, your standard operating procedures, you, you know, you drive to work, but it's not all that far away and they have a charging point there. You live in your own home. Remember only, you know, a, a minority of, uh, in, in the US actually do that. But if you do that, then you have your own charging point back at home and it's great and convenient. You don't go all that far away then an electric car is actually a good idea for you. But right. if you live in a high rise, where are you gonna charge your, uh, your electric car? If you sometime drive further away, what are you gonna do? If you look at Norway, I think that's interesting because they're the ones who have the most electric cars in the world, uh, mostly because they are incredibly rich because they sell a lot of oil. Uh, so they can afford uh, these incredible subsidies. The subsidies uh, in total are almost the entire cost of the car. So that's why it makes almost no sense for anyone to buy anything but an electric car. But the curious fact is almost everyone who have an electric car 
also have a gasoline car. Why? Because, you know, when you have to go on these longer trips, you don't actually want to have to stop every 300 miles and wait and see if there was a, a fast charger and only spend half an hour or what, 20 minutes, uh, but potentially having to wait many hours. That's just not a way to try to set up a society to say, let's all have cars that work slightly less well than the ones that we have today. Again, electric cars are going to be part of the solution, but they're not going to be the full part. And they're certainly not going to be outlawed as many uh, uh, governments have now promised. Once you start getting to those uh, points, we'll see exactly the same, uh, same kind of, uh, of, of uh, uh, backing off on those promises because you realize that's going to be incredibly unpopular with voters. Plus, you won't be able to pay for the subsidies. So I think the fundamental point here is it shows you these 500,000 charging points and all these other promises. It shows you you can't make this transition by spending money on getting people to buy stuff they'd rather not have or that they only want if you bribe them. You need to make this about getting the innovations such that they're better. Look, if you develop a very cheap electric car or you develop an amazing electric car, you will be able to sell it to some people. I think you know a reasonable number of people would actually buy a Tesla without any subsidies, and that's great, but that's still a niche. If you want to have a real breakthrough, you need to have much cheaper batteries, much cheaper cars, and you probably also need to be much, much further uh, down the line. Of course, mostly probably with nuclear, certainly the way we see it right now, mm -hmm. if you're actually gonna get a lot of electricity available. Uh, and these are uncomfortable choices, but, but you know that's what happens when you start taking the red pill. Well, this seemed to me uh, to me seems to be the challenge with uh, renewables and being very ambitious. You are at a risk of at all times getting out over your skis. In other words, the idea yeah. you put those half a million chargers in, but you don't have the electricity to charge them, so you're you're ahead of yourself. It sounds like what you're suggesting is we need, for lack of a better word, a market based approach to to how to do renewable in terms of trying to coax people in by you know the cheaper electric car, the more practical ways to charge your cars, making it just more easier to integrate your lifestyle, as opposed to say here in California, where it's just kind of shock and awe. Bjorn, for example, the state wants to, uh, in the next few years, it wants to outlaw the sale of new gasoline fueled pickup trucks, for example. Hmm. Well, you know, good luck making that happen. People, yes. people go next door to Nevada and buy pickup trucks, I suppose. Yeah. That's the idea. And just you just gotta you can either try to coax people into it or just just you know hit them by a two by four, which would be the California approach. And and Bill, I I actually think it's a little more nuanced than that because it's 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 in in some sense you could argue that the that the subsidies are also a market based approach that you're you know you're you're bribing people in order to make you know more green choices. The problem is nobody can afford to bribe everyone. Right. Uh, so you know that's what they are discovering in Norway. They they you know, they used to tax gasoline cars, and that brought in a lot of money that basically funds all the roads, as you do in the U.S. Right. Uh, when you start giving subsidies away and making it free for everybody to drive around in your electric cars, they now about ten percent of all uh, cars in, in in Norway are uh, uh, electric cars because there's you know there's a long turnover. Um, but now they're starting to realize we're going to be out of money. It's going to be our next highest cost on the national budget after pensions. Uh, and, and, you know, so eventually you'll have to tax them. And then, of course, people are not going to buy them anymore. You need a different approach. And that's where innovation comes in. Remember, we know that there's a good reason why governments should be involved in innovation. If you make great innovation uh, that can't quite be marketed just now, you actually never see private companies do this. So these great breakthroughs that eventually lead to you know, medical breakthroughs or energy technology breakthroughs, if your patent has run out before it leads to the societally great breakthrough, mm -hmm. private companies won't do it, but it's still a huge social benefit. That's why we, you know, we fund blue sky research and medical uh, research because they make all those breakthroughs that later become uh, 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 profitable from private uh, pharmaceuticals, for instance. Right. We should do the same in energy. If we could come up with these electric cars that are cheap and effective and people will want, and that actually cheaper than gasoline cars, we would not only make the world a great service, but we'd also give everybody a better product. That could be amazing. And research and development is cheap. Mm -hmm. So we should not be in the production part of it. That's what we're trying to do right now. We're giving a lot of these subsidies to actual Teslas being produced. And that's basically just a, 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 a way to subsidize Elon Musk. And I don't really think he needs that. What we should be doing 
is to focus on getting better technology. And that's about subsidizing the researchers because researchers are cheap. So we can afford to do this across vast, vast number of areas. So we should be looking at electric cars. We should be looking at batteries. We should be looking at better uh, solar and the nuclear power and the, you know, the maybe uh, even better nuclear power in the future. We should be looking at batteries. We should be looking at, you know, Craig Venter's idea and all these other ideas because they're cheap. That's the way that we actually motivate a market economy. We make the market economy more effective by having the invention, inventions that will allow us to make better products. Bjorn, um, are you a fan of John Kerry? <laughs> I think you know John Kerry is one of the players in this conversation. He wants to, us to do a lot on climate change. I think that's that's great that he wants to, but he certainly seems very focused just on this project and and not realizing that there are many other oh, competing here's, interests. Here's what I'm getting to, and if you are thirsty, my friend, this is a good time for you to grab a drink and hydrate because it's going to take me a minute to read this quote. But uh, <laughs> those not familiar with uh, former Secretary of State, former U.S. Senator, former presidential candidate John Kerry, uh, he is currently uh, Joe Biden's special presidential envoy for climate. It's a cabinet-level position. Uh, it's a pretty good gig, Bjorn. It means he, among other things, gets to crash uh, meetings with the National Security Council. He's a big minister with a pretty ambitious portfolio inside the administration. The other day, uh, Bjorn, he gave an interview with BBC Arabic. I suppose he was talking to them. I think he was in Cairo giving a speech. And that's why he was talking to them. Here's what he said. Bear with me. It'll take a minute to read. Quote, it, meaning the war in Ukraine, uh, could have a profound negative impact on the climate. Obviously, you have a war and obviously you're going to have massive emissions consequences to the war. But equally important, you're going to lose people's focus. You're going to lose certainly big country attention because it will be diverted. And I think it will have a damaging impact. He goes on, quote, so, you know, I think hopefully President Putin would realize that in the northern part of the country, they used to live on 66 percent of the nation that was over frozen land. Now it's thawing and his infrastructure is at risk and the people of Russia are at risk. And so I hope President Putin will help us stay on track with respect to what we need to do for the climate. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> yes, that's it, it's amazing. And I, I saw that quote. And, you know, it's, it's sort of what happens when you're so focused on one area, you can't really see that for most people. There are many other issues. Of course, Putin is not going to be impressed by the fact that Kerry tells him that you know global warming might be problematic to Russia, so you should stop this war. And, and likewise, it's absolutely ridiculous and, and a little callous to talk about the main problem with the Ukrainian war is that it'll increase emissions or it'll take away attention. I, I'm sort of reminded of people who are you know organizing a, a, a dog show and are really annoyed with Putin because, you know, it took away the attention from my dog show. I both understand that, you know, if you put a lot of attention into this dog show, you're really annoyed. But, you know, it's sort of on two different levels uh, right. of, of, of conversation here. With that said, I think it also shows the, the lack of understanding much of the climate community of realizing you need to have everybody else on board. Uh, you know, there's this sort of almost moral superiority. You know, you guys ought to just come along with get get along with the program and and switch to renewables and not do all this bad stuff. You know, people don't emit CO2 to be you know annoy Al Gore or any or John Kerry. They do it because it provides them a better life, and that's especially true in the developing countries where people are basically lifting themselves out of poverty using uh, you know uh, uh, cheap and reliable energy. So we need to realize you're not going to solve this problem, but just simply telling people you shouldn't, you should be poor, you should be colder, you should be less comfortable. That's never going to work. You're not going to solve this problem by just piling subsidies on top of subsidies. Uh, uh, you know, the new estimate from McKinsey on what will net zero cost is that it'll cost about $9.2 trillion every year for the next uh, about uh, three decades. Right. That's just in, in, inconceivable to imagine that that will actually happen. Just to give you a sense of proportion, that's half the global tax intake. So half of all the money that all the nations in the entire world take in every year would now have to be spent on net zero. That's just not going to happen. It's, right. it's not even in the land of the possible. And that tells you, you know, so in, in that sense, I see John Kerry's example as this sort of extreme example of, realize, of, of people not realizing you need to find a solution that's actually plausible. If you talk about making policies that will cost thousands of dollars per person per year in the U.S., 
you're not going to get most people on board. They're just not going to say, yes, I'll keep voting for that guy. They will pay a couple of hundred dollars for climate policies. So the real challenge is how do we find a solution that stays within that budget frame? Most climate campaigners haven't found that. They instead say they ought to be willing to pay uh, $2,000. And, and I'm pretty sure that their friends will all be willing to pay these $2,000 because they're both very committed to climate. They're also, often also fairly well off. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not the whole country and certainly not what you build a majority on. So again, that's why I keep saying, instead of trying to spend an enormous amount of money on things that'll do fairly little, which is what we've been doing so far. We need to spend less, but smarter on research and development. Again, if we can innovate just one of these ways, for instance, force generation nuclear to be cheaper than anything else we have, everyone will switch, will be done. And it won't be any problem to convince people because they just want to do that. That's how a market economy works. And that's of course how real solutions happen. If you think back in you know, other big problems the world has solved, uh, you know, think in the 1970s, we worried about not having enough food for everyone in the world. The solution was not to tell everyone, I'm sorry, could you all eat a little less and then we're gonna send it to Africa and India and so they can, they can uh, uh, get something to eat. No, the real solution was the green revolution, the one where we developed much better and higher yielding varieties of, of, of seeds that basically produced much, much more food for every acre grown. Mm -hmm. That empowered these individual nations and it made us be able to keep eating as we like, mm -hmm. but actually make them much better at producing their food so that everybody ended up uh, being much better nourished. That's how you solve a problem, not by asking people to do more uncomfortable stuff, but by making innovations. So let's anticipate a near future, Bjorn, where the shooting war in Ukraine has died down. It's no longer dominating the news. And we get back to business as usual here in the world. What is the next wrinkle in the climate change debate? Oh, if I if I knew that, I, I'd possibly be much richer. But I I, I think I, I think there's a lot of tendency, and we've seen this in the past, to just go back to what we where we were before. So, you know, most of these uh, climate uh, uh, campaigners will go back and say, so we were talking about more wind, more solar, more of all that stuff. Uh, and, and that's again, where I try to say, we need to get a reality check. This does not actually work partly because it makes electricity more expensive, partly because it's a very small part of the solution. Uh, one interesting fact is that what we've really seen over the last couple of decades is just that we've switched most of, most of our emissions from rich, well-meaning countries to the rest of the world. Uh, so the UN environment programs are basically the uh, environment ministry for the UN. Uh, they did a, a, a study back in late uh, to, uh, 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 2019, so just before COVID hit, of the last decade of climate policy. What they found was, and I think this has been way under publicized, they found they cannot tell the difference between the world that has actually happened and a world where we didn't care about climate at all since 2005. What right. that means is that John Kerry and many, many other well-meaning people have switched some of our emissions in rich world countries, but they've just cropped up in China, India, many other places. And so it doesn't matter for climate, it makes us feel better, but it actually is not part of the solution. So yes, we're gonna see more of the same when the war dies down in, in Ukraine. And that's where we need to come back and say, more of the same has not solved any problem so far. Why don't we actually try to think smarter, focus on innovation? So final question, Bjorn, uh, as we watch events in Ukraine unfold, which side is winning the intellectual argument, not Ukraine or Russia, but the sides in terms of team fossil versus team renewable, if you will, in terms of energy debates? Is the fossil side winning the argument right now, given that we've seen the, the reliance upon natural gas and oil, or is this a boost for renewables to argue their side of this? <laughs> So, so Team Fossil has been winning the, the uh, argument for the last 200 years because we've basically been using and becoming rich using fossil fuels. That's also what the, uh, the poor world wants. Uh, but I, I think in some ways that's, that's a misleading way to phrase the question because okay. the question is more, how do we get off emitting lots of CO2? And that is a real issue and that is something we need to do. But currently we're doing it in a way that basically means let's try to all feel good about ourselves, do things that 
you know, look good, you know, put up 500,000 uh, charging points and get, uh, you know, force more people into electric cars by giving huge subsidies. And we will do a tiny bit in this part of the world. And of course, it's not going to matter any, anywhere else. And, you know, we're mostly just going to see increasing emissions from other places like China and India. That's not a solution, but it's something that makes you feel good. If you actually want to solve this, you need to focus on the smart and effective ways forward. And that's what I'm saying about you know, research and development into green energy. So I think it's rather that the current solution, the sorry, the current approach has constantly been saying, we feel good about ourselves, but we haven't actually been getting anywhere. And we need to get to that other point where we realize, how do we actually do this? Because right now, fossil fuels have been winning for 200 years. They'll keep winning unless we find a smarter way forward. Okay. Uh, you are soon to uh, leave California and go back to your native land. I assume that unlike Greta Thunberg, you're not going to sail across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, what are you working on next? What's uh, what, what do you have in the way of research going on? So uh, I actually spend most of my time not talking about climate, but mm -hmm. talking about all these other things that matter enormously for most people around the world. Uh, remember, uh, for most people, the fact is, uh, for most people on this planet, they live in abject poverty. They don't have access to electricity or any kind of energy. They, uh, their kids will very likely die from easily curable infectious diseases. They don't get good education. They don't get enough food. They have much more real and immediate problems to deal with. And the amazing thing is we can do something about many of these things. So we can do something, for instance, on tuberculosis. Remember uh, before COVID, tuberculosis was the biggest infectious disease killer. Mm -hmm. It is not something we talk about because we fixed it a hundred years ago. Tuberculosis is eminently treatable, but still one and a half million people die every year. Uh, many of them in, in India because of lack of investment into cheap uh, technologies that could actually help. That's you know, screening, that's drugs, that's way of keeping people on the drug. You need to take it for six months at a time, which is really hard for most people to do. These are simple problems. They are also very, very boring. Uh, and that's why I often end up in, in rich world countries talking mostly about the problems that we do badly, like climate. Yes. Uh, but actually, I like to talk a lot about maybe we should do another podcast on this on you know all the amazing things that we can do that at very low cost can save a lot of lives and make a lot of lives much better. I'm up for doing another podcast if you are enjoy. Yes, this. let's let's do that. That'd okay. be great. Let's also get you on the Goodfellow Show and Uncommon Knowledge if you're willing. That people lead. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Bjorn Lomberg is on Twitter. Brave man that he is. His Twitter handle is at Bjorn Lomberg. Not surprisingly, that's spelled B-J-O-R-N-L-O-M-B-O-R-G. I'd also refer you to Lomborg.com, where Bjorn separates fact from fiction with regard to all sorts of matters. You can also find more about Bjorn and the Hoover Daily Report. Um, to sign up for that, go to our website, hoover.org, click on the Publications tab, then go to where it says, it says subscribe for Daily Report, and it'll arrive in your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Till then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts, or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.